Welcome to the final webinar of the seventh year of the Nutritionist webinars. I'm Marianne Fessenden, Educational Academic Liaison for AMTS and your host for this series. This year, we are focusing solely on emissions with an emphasis on dairy cattle. We have covered topics from using byproducts, proper accounting for emissions, sustainable fats, methane mitigators, and even using social media to share facts. Today, we're joined by Dr. Tom Taluki, CEO of AMTS. In today's webinar, we've asked Tom to provide a plan that nutritionists can implement to help reduce emissions and address the growing furor outside the industry about animal agriculture and the climate. He does that and some other things. Please enjoy the webinar, followed by the question sessions. I, and I want to say that this was one of the hardest webinars that, that I actually had to put together um, because it, it's it really uh, touches on some subjects that, that are uh, difficult for me to calmly address. Uh, we asked, uh, since this is the last webinar of the year for MTS, of this, of this special series that we did on emissions and methane and such, uh, we asked um, everyone to give recommendations or give suggestions of what everyone wanted me to talk about for this one. And, and they could really be lumped into uh, five or six different categories. Uh, one of them being methane reduction products. Um, another one, which is a, a very, very critical component in this whole discussion about methane emissions is let's say that we had carbon trading going and people were getting paid for trading carbon credits. And then we find out that the products that, that we were told uh, were reducing methane emissions actually do not. Um, would we have to pay, would the farms have to reimburse um, the investment from those carbon credits? Uh, that was a very, very timely question, very interesting question. Uh, and then had quite a few on how do we reduce protein or nutrition feeding? How do we, uh, so that we can think about emissions related to that? Uh, we had some people uh, had one person ask about what we were going to do as, as MPS related to Mason 2021. Uh, and there were some other topics that, that people threw out. So I'm uh, going to go through, we're going to talk a little bit about methane. Uh, I'm not going to get too deep into it because that to me is the, the one I have, I'm trying to control some of my emotions on. Uh, and, and I also think that, that Frank has done, uh, if you go back and look at Frank's webinar, uh, he's he's addressed a lot of these, these uh, issues related to agriculture and methane emissions in a, in a very, very professional and very correct manner. Uh, and, and we need to do more uh, discussions like Frank did. Um, and I'm only going to say a couple things about Mason. Uh, that's really simple for, for MTS. Uh, we're doing the same uh, approach. Uh, we've taken the same approach with Mason as, as the official CNCPS has done. Uh, when Amber and I talked about it right when we heard Mason was going to be published. Uh, and what we've done is uh, we've added the, the mineral and vitamin calculations uh, for requirements and the, the new biological values that, that were assigned to all the minerals and, uh, by the committee for Mason 2021. We added those. We didn't replace what we had. We still have the NRC 2001 uh, for dairy on uh, the 96 updated, what, 2006, I think, 
uh, requirements for beef. Uh, we, but we just added the 2021 so that people could evaluate 2021 numbers and 2001 numbers side by side, because there's some pretty big differences. Uh, and then there's some uh, unanswered questions that, that we have um, related to 2021's uh, edition, including things as uh, on some of the, the trace minerals, organic minerals versus inorganic sources, uh, that there's no differences in, in biological values or digestibilities uh, between sources. So, you know, as we think about some of the suppliers, uh, some of the commercial products, uh, we've already gone and have been asking them, what do you want to do? What numbers? It, it's, it causes some challenges for us. Uh, and we're also showing um, on lactating dairy cows, the predicted, equate, the predicted intakes uh, based on either the, the updated animal, require, uh, animal equation or the, the uh, animal fiber equations um, that Mike Allen put together. Uh, we're showing those for lactating cows. Again, in addition to what we had have is, is the old CMTPS equation, as well as the NRC, NRC 2001 equation. Uh, there's some interesting things as I've done some evaluations uh, of, uh, and just a broad spectrum of diets uh, that, that the 2021 animal only, and, and then adding on top of that, the animal and fiber equation, uh, there, there's some interesting things uh, to be looking at that. Uh, at this point, we're not going to do anything else with NASM. Um, it, it's especially since CNCPS version seven is in process uh, and, and well in process to a point where where I'm hoping uh, you know to be fully implemented and, and released uh, to the public uh, to to our users. The way things are looking, it'll be sometime 2023, uh, maybe second half, uh, maybe the end of, of, of 2023. It may be a great Christmas present uh, for the industry uh, for 2023. We shall see. So the whole issue with methane, wow. You know, like I said at the beginning, I, I, this, is a, this is a difficult topic for me. I've got very strong feelings about this. Um, you know, when we look at the diet that we feed, uh, the majority of the, the ingredients that we use uh, are either byproducts from human food or from uh, fuel production. Uh, you think of all the distillers grains or even uh, soybean meal or canola meal. Um, th those are all byproducts, really. Um, or we use a lot of byproducts uh, that are uh, human food and, and edible. Uh, they don't meet human food standards or their returns from, from uh, human food production. Uh, for example, I use a chocolate candy cookie blend or think of all the wheat mids or wheat shorts or wheat bran that we feed around the world. We do a lot of byproducts or, or, and we're using other things like forages um, where we could get a really high yield of, of a crop that is good for ruminants but would be marginal in terms of yield uh, for direct human food uh, production. Uh, so it, it's, it's, it allows us, ruminants allow us to, to capitalize on, on raw materials and resources that otherwise would either be wasted or, or would be uh, not possible to use. 
Um, so, you know, as we think about the carbon that's released uh, by ruminants as methane, it's really recycled through plants. It, it's recycled either through uh, direct uh, feeding of these byproducts, uh, or it's recycled through the growth of new plants. That, you know, when we grow a grass forage or an alfalfa or, or corn silage. And, and that recycling, I call it, you know, there's no clear term on this. I call it old carbon because it's carbon that's already CO2 that's already in the atmosphere and we're recycling it uh, versus new direct carbon uh, emissions uh, from the utilization of, of fossil fuels. Um, and, and I think we need to make that distinction. I think that distinction needs to be made at a regulatory level as well as an accounting basis, uh, because it, we're, we're being challenged to address this, and, and I don't know how much we can really address it. You know, products, there's a lot of research going on on different products about methane mitigation around the world. As of today, and this is October 9th, 2022, we don't have any approved in the USA yet. Uh, I know. Uh, TSM's product, the three knot product, is, is going through that process. Um, and so I'm not going to say anything about any of the products because there's still a lot of R&D going on. And, and we see all these numbers and all these claims about what kind of methane reduction we'll see with them and everything. But I want you know, I do want to throw a couple of numbers out at you. You know, let, let's let's put this into perspective. Uh, there's all this excitement about some of these seaweed products or algae products or any of these, okay? Let's say that we have a 50 gram per day feeding rate, which is low or, you know, average maybe for some of these products. Uh, I looked it up earlier. There's about 94 million head of cattle uh, in the USA. So that's between beef and dairy, uh, includes calves, everything. Um, I didn't look up, you know, sheep, goats or anything. I just looked at cattle in the US. So at 50 gram today, that's 4,700 metric tons of product that we would need to feed per day to treat the entire U.S. cattle herd. And how are we going to produce this from, from some of these products? How are we going to, you know, how are we going to produce? I don't even know. Is it a 30-day growth cycle for some of these products? Is it a seven-day growth cycle? How are we going to generate that kind of volume uh, to do this? just for the US. Now let's include Europe, let's include Asia, let's include India, you know, this is not something that, that, that just a handful of little products is going to treat. Uh, we've really got to put this in perspective of what is physically, logistically possible. Um, but I think we also need some trials that last uh, three years, at a minimum I would suggest, I think some of them we really need to, to consider five years trials to really see if that this reduction in methane emissions uh, is is consistent and if it remains. You know, I, I did some looking through the literature to try and and look at what are some of the long term trials, uh, and, and I was just using three dot because that, that's actually got the, the largest data set out there that I could find, and it's a lot of the trials, you know they consider long-term 120, 150 days. 
And, and here's one uh, that 2021, it was published. Uh, and it's about, you know, looking at 3NOP, uh, varying concentrate rates, okay, great. Uh, and one of their stated objectives, present study aimed to address missing long-term studies investigating the effects of 3NOP in combination with varying uh, uh, 40 percentage rates on emissions, okay? Their stated objective, long-term. Well, the trial lasted from day 28 prepartum to day 120 postpartum to 148-day trial, okay? That's not long-term, sorry, folks. Um, and if we look at the, the data from the trial, this is just, I, I screen captured this, this right out of the paper. This is methane emissions up here in the top right, top left panel, okay? The two blue lines are the non 3 not uh, treated animals. The red lines are 3 not it's either high forage or low forage, I think, uh, rates, uh, higher low forage diets. And yes, there's this really nice reduction in methane emissions all in through here. But look at this one, the lower feeding rate. By day, by week seven in lactation, those cows, that, that, that effect is starting to go away. The higher feeding rate, okay, it lasts a little bit longer, but look out here, you know, we're getting towards the end and we're starting to see that trend upwards in methane emissions. Now, we even look at methane yield, grams per kilo of intake. We see it's even more pronounced where this low level, they come back pretty quick. And the higher level, they're starting to trend back up, okay? Uh, even methane inten intensity, okay, per kilo of energy corrected milk, we're seeing the same trends. So, you know, th this really, you know, and it really goes back to the to the one question that, that I was asked to address was uh, what happens, you know, if people were using this and, and selling carbon credits, and then we start this newer data came out, you know, after a, a two lactation long trial, uh, where we actually saw that it goes away, where the, the treatment effect goes away. I don't know the answer to this, okay? I, I, I think it's a huge lack of data that we have to really be able to answer some of these questions. And, and you know, when you look at, at the age of methanogens, okay, recent work, uh, you know, 33 genera representing 13 families in six orders, and ancient lifestyles, okay? Remember this, these are not young bugs. These are bugs that, that have been around for, you know, I, one of the estimates I saw was like 3.2 or 3.5 billion years. Um, and, and everything looks like so far that, you know, they evolved only once and that all modern methanogens share a single ancestor. These things are survivors. They, they live in tough environments. And is it really, are we really arrogant in thinking that we can control a species that's evolved over a few billion years uh, and, and, and that we can do that in 10 years, 15 years, 25 years, uh, or is it going to evolve quickly to, for survival of it as a species? I personally think that's what would happen. Uh, I, I really, you know, think about uh, antibiotic uh, resistance and drugs in, in, in microbes related to uh, animal health, human health. Um, 
the species is going to do anything it can to survive. There will be uh, uh, individual bacteria, uh, methanogens, that, that will, will learn to cope with lower levels of, of hydrogen substrate to grow. Uh, would they switch their metab metabolism to, to capture something else or, or to do anything uh, to be able to survive? So instead of thinking about how are we going to, to treat the rumen to minimize methane emissions, should we really be focusing on, on how do we minimize methane per kilo of human uh, edible proteins? You know, that, that whole uh, uh, efficiency factor uh, of emissivity, emissivity, or however the hell you say it. Um, and, and really think about it differently and, 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 and do things uh, scientifically based that, that we know that, that, that can really uh, improve the sustainability of our egg businesses. No, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm not saying we shouldn't do anything that we should just give up and be like, ah, we can't do anything about methane, move on. Because, but we do have to recognize that, that cows are ruminants. We're the ultimate recyclers. We convert all these ways to human edible proteins. Uh, but what I am saying is I am highly frustrated uh, by our industry. I'm highly frustrated by the hypocrites and that, that, that promote policy or promote uh, uh, um, various sides of, of what agriculture should do when they don't when they don't have they have a vested interest in other components. You know, a great example. You know, let's take non -G We're going to say, okay, agriculture, you can't use GMOs, but yet we will openly support growing uh, meat and uh, and from cell cultures that's based on cloning. Come on, you know, let let let's let's. Let's talk about this. Uh, or taking, you know, this is a huge thing in, in the state of New York right now where they're taking really good tillable land and converting it to solar farms. Um, but yet the, the, the uh, um, support for farms to do methane digesters for RNG or electrical production uh, is really low. Uh, you know, heard it was said by one of our politicians that, oh my God, if we were to support, you know, uh, methane digesters for RNG, then that would just cause an explosion in the number of dairy farms in New York State. So people have no clue, and, and, and yet they're the ones setting policies on us. So we need, as an industry, we need good, strong, local, regional, country, global voices that are telling a consistent story. Uh, to tell the, the power of what, what, of what we've done in agriculture, of what we've done in ruminant nutrition, uh, to really promote our success story and to prevent bad policy decisions. Uh, I don't think we are, I think we still have an opportunity to prevent some, some bad policies, but we have to act now. This is, we can't be waiting anymore. And, and I'm afraid when I listen to some of the things going on um, around the world related to some of these policies uh, discussions or some of the research, we're doing what we've always done in, in production agriculture. You know, great example. Every time that we've had a increase in labor costs or environmental policy, as dairy farmers or as beef farmers, what have we always what have we always done? 
quite simply, we bitched and moaned and complained and expanded, added more cows and sucked up, sucked it up and adapted and survived. Um, I mean, that leads to more consolidation in the industry, but we survived every time we've done that. Not so simple to do that anymore, especially with things like methane or increased regulations that, that a lot of the areas around the world, farms can't expand in size anymore. There's no more land or our milk buyers are saying with the dairy industry, we don't want more milk. So we really can't do business as usual of just expand. Uh, we need to be thinking differently before we are completely told what to do. Uh, okay, enough of all that. The other topic that people wanted to talk about, how do we reduce protein? So we're gonna switch gears here. We can get into a lot of discussions on, on, on uh, the methane side and everything that I just talked about. Like I said, very passionate about this uh, and very frustrated, but we'll talk nutrition now. So can we do lower protein diets and get good milk production? And the answer to that is absolutely we can. I, I think this is a classic study to me anymore. You know, it's 2006, it's 16 year old data. Uh, and it was great because what did they do? They increased the diet crude protein, okay, in these lactating diets. And look what happened to milk nitrogen. There's no difference. Nitrogen intake went up just like it should, but manure nitrogen went up, okay? And we look at that manure nitrogen, Fecal nitrogen really didn't change. It's all urinary nitrogen. So we know, you know, what I want you to start thinking about is in general, when we look at, 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 at diets around the world, we tend to uh, overfeed groom degradable protein. Okay. We, we are, a lot of the models that are out there uh, are, are recommending levels of RDP that, that really are not needed by the animal. So we end up wasting a lot of, a lot of nitrogen. Uh, you know, here's just some great, great uh, data as well from 2005 out of Jimmy Clark's lab. Look at this range in, in, in diet crude protein all the way from 12 to 26%. Yeah, like, you know, let's take this 16% range, okay? Look at the range in milk production at one level of crude protein. That, that, that's plus or minus 10 kilos of milk. Right, so crude protein, forget about it. We don't, you know, we're going to talk MP. We're going to talk about how do we actually better formulate these diets to bring these diets down to where we're, we're more nitrogen efficient. Uh, just some more data on this out, out of either when uh, Norm St. Pierre was still at, at Ohio State or, or out of uh, Hisroff's lab, uh, you know, increase the, the nitrogen feeding, okay, increase crude protein levels. And, and in general, there, there's very little uh, change in fecal nitrogen, but any excess and any excess nitrogen that we feed uh, or an imbalance of amino acids where, where we can't use it efficiently, we see this increase in urinary nitrogen. And, and that increase in urinary nitrogen also takes us to varying levels of MUNs, PUNs, pick, pick your number that you want to evaluate. Uh, the higher those numbers, the higher the level of wasted nitrogen going into the into the cow. So when we look at the nitrogen uh, going through the cow, and notice I'm saying more nitrogen because it's more 
That's what we're really thinking about uh, when we talk about, think about rumen dynamics and, and rumen requirements. Uh, the rumen doesn't require protein. Uh, the rumen bugs require nitrogen and amino acids. Uh, so anything that comes into the cow that she consumes either as proteins or as ammonia, uh, it's going to get degraded. You know, those, those true proteins are going to get degraded into peptides and free amino acids. Some of that will go into ammonia. Uh, and, and those pools will get used to produce, uh, to help in the production of microbial protein. Any of the ammonia that's left over, it's going to go into the blood. And it's going to go through, through uh, the liver and could come back through the plasma. It's going to be mitigated uh, by the kidney as to how much nitrogen, how much urea she's holding within her system uh, to recycle back into the rumen. And that's a really important point to remember is the cow is her nitrogen dynamics to maintain rumen health uh, and rumen function is amazing. You, gotta, you know, this is, again, we're talking about a system that has co-evolved, it's a symbiotic relationship between the rumen and the, and, and the, and the ruminant animal uh, that, has, that has developed over millions of years uh, for her to be able to utilize the, these poor quality feeds in general uh, and, 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 so, and keep that rumen healthy to actually feed the animal. And, you know, it's, we can look at some different methods of, of, of processing some of these proteins or, or, you know, is there differences in, in uh, preservation methods of forages or how much is actually recycled by the cow? And I think that's a really important uh, area to discuss is what type of recycling do we have? This is a study that, that uh, came out of Roulet's lab uh, where, you know, it wasn't a lot of cows, but these are intensive studies, and it was really looking at three different forages. So either sun-cured hay, uh, silage, hay crop silage that was either formic acid treated or inoculated, okay? So basically, these two silages were the same, and then the hay just ended up being a little bit lower in protein because of, of you know, normal uh, harvest uh, practices and like that. So intake nitrogen okay the hay was a little bit lower lower nitrogen level in it to begin with and, and when we look at how much um, uh, urea uh, was generated you, you look at that about half over 50 to 60 percent of the nitrogen that was consumed ended up going into urea all right remember that number when we look at how much of that urea nitrogen was coming back into the GIT and in back into the, into the gastrointestinal tract, 30 to 45% of that nitrogen was coming back into the system. Okay, again, it's just this, this nitrogen recycling is massive uh, in, in the cow and, and she's very, very efficient in doing so. Uh, if we start pulling together all the data you know, 50 to 70% of the nitrogen that she consumes gets converted to urea. Okay, and, and this appears to be, you know, a, a, a required functionality of the cow, which makes perfect sense to, to keep that rumen healthy. And, and about 60% of that, that urea production actually goes back into the, into the gut. Okay, it's gonna go back into the rumen, either directly across the rumen wall or through saliva. Uh, and, and 
and all the data is showing that that you know 30 to 80 percent of the total microbial yield okay so all all the microbial nitrogen that we get it's coming from recycled nitrogen uh some of that because of, of protozoa predation some of that is just because of of uh just recycling through the rest of the system uh but the, the they rely heavily on this um and you know when we look at think about how we model this and, and there's different models out there uh, uh you know if we look at at uh Church model out of the netherlands or we look at, at uh so Molly out, out of out of uh, Cal Davis. Um, we, we've there's different levels of complexities of how to do this. Uh, the the base Cornell model uh, right now uh, we deal with two pools of bugs. Uh, that's changing with version seven, which adds a third pool that adds protozoa. On uh, that that has some really cool functionality in it. But let's just talk about the base system now. We deal with the bugs that 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 permit NFC. And, and bugs that that utilize fermental uh, structural carbohydrates, so potentially digestible NDF. Um, and and those two pools of bugs have different nitrogen requirements. Uh, the, the the bugs that, that do NFC uh, are kind of lazy. They they prefer to use some some uh, uh, free amino acids and, and small peptides to meet their nitrogen requirements, uh, but they can use ammonia. Uh, the fiber buds can only use ammonia. Uh, so, and, and that's one of the things where, where the Cornell model uh, approach has really helped us on reducing nitrogen levels in diets is, is taking into account the, these nitrogen requirements of the bugs uh, and finding that, that we can reduce RDP levels quite a bit. Now, the interesting thing is the fiber bugs, while they don't require amino acids, per se, uh, they can't produce their own branch chain amino acids. Uh, so we've got to have either some free amino acids of the branch chains or peptides with those in it or uh, the, the branch chain VFAs uh, to meet their, uh, their requirements to, to, for growth for those amino acids. So we've still got to have a little bit of, of, of true protein in there. You know, we can't just feed all urea to these cows. Uh, or, or uh, we're hearing there's more and more, there's some work come, going on and some products coming on, on supplying branch chain VFAs uh, to try and, and meet the requirements of these animals, of these bugs, okay? At the end of the day, we can account for how much nitrogen the rumen needs and, and be much more, or much more efficient uh, in, in how much we're actually feeding the cow in terms of total grams of nitrogen. Chris Reynolds put some of this data together with nitrogen recycling yeah, and looking at how much is recycled uh, or that proportion that's coming back into the gut uh, versus how much is being excreted in urine. Uh, and and I, this, is, this is some really classic data to me now. Uh, we look at it's related to dietary protein. And you can see that as protein level goes up, the amount of nitrogen recycling comes down, okay? Again, she, she's gonna do everything she can to keep the rumen happy. We get down into these low levels, you know, seven and a half, 5%, you know, not greater than 90% of the nitrogen that, that's coming into the rumen is recycled. The inverse is true too, that if she doesn't need it, she's gonna excrete it via, via the urine, all right? Now, when we put those two graphs together, 
So the blue line is the nitrogen that's coming back into the into the rumen, into the into the GIT, and the black and the X's are urinary nitrogen excretion. Okay. You notice here at about 15% dietary crude protein, about half of the nitrogen that's going in going into the rumen is recycled and half of it's being excreted. We can get all the way down here, and this is, you know, some of the work uh, that come out of Cornell and like that, being in the 13, 14% crude protein levels on diets. Okay, so about here, we're still seeing, you know, 40% 40, 40 or so of, of that nitrogen is being excreted through urinary means. So that, that's really showing us that, that we have a lot of opportunity to, to improve our efficiencies of nitrogen utilization. She's really adept. At, at maintaining her nitrogen balances. Um, and, and we really just need to think about how are we going to capture that nitrogen more and, and how are we going to improve the, the efficiency of our overall nitrogen utilization. They also looked at, at um, uh, is there uh, benefits of, of, of timing releases of, of nitrogen and, and, and carbohydrates? Um, and, and in that study, uh, Going looking at non-steady state feeding, uh, they couldn't identify uh, any any benefit of trying to synchronize this whole concept of synchronization. Uh, now it could be that that they just didn't have a wide enough range on, on some things. Uh, we don't know, but in general, uh, in general, we overfeed nitrogen. Okay, it, it is really it is really that that level of simplicity. The next bunch of slides, and some of these are, are now seven, 10 years old. Uh, Larry Chase shared these with me a while ago uh, from a field study that he did, uh, which these are real, real diets, real herds. Uh, they put together a group uh, of, from 14 herds, okay, of diets that were less than 16% protein. Uh, most of the herds were over 80 pounds of milk. Uh, four states and, and a half a dozen nutritionists or so from around the, around the area. Average milk, 85 pounds, range, okay, herd level, group level, 60 to 116 pounds milk. Look at this range in protein, 14 through to 16.5. MUN is eight to 14, okay? Average was nine and a half. And we're gonna talk some more about the, the, this MNE. So that this is milk nitrogen efficiency. Uh, it, it's kind of considered that it looks like that the maximum uh, possible efficiency uh, is around 40%, uh, maybe 42, okay? And look, we've got groups in here doing that did 38% efficiency, um, the average of 34, uh, and look at the low, 28. You know, here's some huge opportunities. So, so let's think of it this way. This is grams of... of milk nitrogen divided by grams of nitrogen intake okay so it's a, a gross efficiency number the diets you know 48 to 60 percent forage um i know i've seen some diets uh more recently uh going up into the low 70s on forage level with pretty high levels of milk um so the system the industry has been evolving quite a bit in the last 10 years since, since, since Larry put this data together. Pretty good range on milk fat, milk true proteins. But look at this start 24 to 32. 
And, and, and we'll come back and talk about that one a little bit, um, as well as the range in sugar, three to seven. None of them are really high fat, okay? So that should tell you something right away of, of what the direction we're going. Uh, I'll, I'll say this right now, it's all about how are we gonna maximize the amount of fermentable carbohydrates going into the cow? That's the key, that's the trick. Some of the, some of the diets, okay, this was uh, 140 cows, tight stall herd, TMR, 92 pounds of milk. And 14% protein, folks. Um, 31% NDF, 29% uh, starch, 5% sugar, 4% fat, nothing real special, okay? 60% forage diet, heavy uh, corn silage, okay? 17 pounds dry matter, a good grass alfalfa mix uh, haylage. Uh, all first cut, I, I know this farm, they do all their first cut is, that they harvest is for the lactating cows. 13 pounds of corn, a little bit of molasses, some sugar, soy, roasted beans, a little bit of animal protein in here and amino acids. Simple diets, okay? And, and you'll see that as we go through a few more examples like this, they are simple diets centered around high quality forages. Uh, across the, the study, the data set that Larry had, uh, if we look at peaks, you know, we've, we've heard this, oh, you can't feed low crude protein because you're going to have clip peaks. That's not true at all. Uh, there's no difference in peak milk by lactation uh, in this data set. Um, again, it didn't take driven. Data out of California, okay, 2010, you know, looking at ration crude protein versus uh, milk production of the herd. Absolutely no relationship. Okay. Uh, so, it's some more examples, okay, 54 pounds of intake, 92 pounds of milk, 14.4 crude protein, uh, well, 31.6 NDF, you know, and amino acid formulated, okay, again, corn silage, grass silage, okay, decent, you know, again, forages, Look at another 53 pounds, average in 89, 15% protein, 31 and a half NDF on uh, formulated, you know, pretty tight, 94, 98 for energy and protein level milk. Low, you know, just 104% of requirement on rheumatoid pneumonia. You see RDPs in here and like that. I don't talk about RDPs other than I'll say this compared to the numbers that you're used to looking at, probably on a lot of your herd, a lot of your diet, a lot of people are going to say these are low. And I'm going to sit here and tell you there's no static number for an RDP in the model. It's calculated. Okay. There is when someone says the diet should be 10% RDP, I'm going to come back and say at what level of intake, what level of milk, what level of, of you know, everything. Uh, because RDP is, is dynamic. Uh, it is based on it's calculated on the ingredients that we deal with, the pool sizes, the pool, the rates. But also the, based on level of intake, what are our passage rates? Uh, so I, that's why I never talk RDP. I'll look at rheumatoid pneumonias. Uh, and, and again, 104 is formulating these, these diets pretty damn tight, folks. Again, heavy corn silage, um, you know, 9.8 pounds of alfalfa hay, had a little bit of straw. But look, a blend of both flake corn, so this would be like a 28-pound steam flake corn, and, and a finely ground uh, cornmeal. 
Um, and you look, there's no animal proteins in, oh yeah, there's a little bit of animal protein in here, sorry. Uh, but again, heavy fermentable carbohydrates, a good source of bypass proteins, and then formulated for amino acids. Another herd, 50 pounds of intake, 15-8 protein, you know, 80, 84 pounds of milk. Um, again, formulated for amino acids, low fat. Okay, it's not like we're, we're feeding these things like pigs. We're actually feeding them like good, healthy rumens. Haylage, okay, uh, canola meal, ground corn, corn silage, citrus pulp, roasted beans. Amino acids, okay. Um, ingredient selection, ingredient source control, good forages. Uh, you know, that's why we see this six, we call it six, eight, lysine percent of MP, methionine 2.3, lysine 2.94. This is the old number. This is from, from like six, one biology. That's how old this data is, folks. Okay. Um, now, if we were to look at these, these really need to be rerun. This data set needs to be rerun to look at it in terms of signing to ME ratio. And, and because this is a little bit out of line of what we're, what we're currently recommending for likes to signing. Uh, we're, we're in version 655 biology. We're more like 2.65 is kind of the, the optimum likes to met ratio. Here's, okay, remember that that um, uh, MNE that was in the earlier side, that's what this is, productive N over total N, 35%. And again, remember 40% seems to be about the, the uh, biological uh, max, maybe 42. Uh, another number that, that Van Amberg really likes to talk this number, productive N over urinary N, because it, it's urinary N's the, where we can have the most impact. We're not gonna change fecal nitrogen much, but we can change urinary nitrogen. And, and he's targeting, you know, greater than 1.1. This, this example, it's 1.3 to one. So that, that's really saying that, that we're utilizing that nitrogen efficiently versus what we're, what we're um, releasing through urine. Which is also important because that urinary nitrogen is what's volatile and much much more uh, uh, likely to uh, escape into the environment and cause uh, water quality uh, uh, concerns. This is real herd. Not going to tell you herd names, nothing, uh, but we'll show you this as to what impact tightening down that that RDP uh, feeding level. Uh, really focusing on the fermentable carbs and then focusing on amino acids, what impact it can have. Okay, you can see this herd, this is milk true protein. You know, there's a little bit of seasonal variation, okay? But I'll say here at this point, uh, some forage changes, okay? That's why we saw milk fat come down like this. And, and then they really bumped up the, the uh, uh, amino acid uh, formulations, okay? They, they added... They went from like a, 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 I think it was like a two, four, two, three to a two, four, five methionine as a percent of MP, if I remember the data right. In that reformulation, when they did that, they also saw like this with MUNs, you know, averaging 12, 13, you know, some spikes up around 14. But then when they went in with the higher amino acids, step one dropped them to 11, step two dropped them to around seven or eight. So they figured out, um, they calculated out that it, it came out that they were they reduced nitrogen in urine about 60 grams 
of, of nitrogen per cow per day. I may not sound like a big number, but when we blow that up on 1,100 cows, okay, that's about 26 and a half tons of nitrogen that we pulled out, out of the environment per year. That's a big number. We put that back on a soybean meal equivalent, okay? That works out in 2009, that was 40 cents a cow per day, lower feed costs. We're talking real money on, on being able to do this over and above anything that we do from an environmental standpoint. That's the beauty of, of, of going down this path of reducing crude protein levels. Typically, we, we're also saving some money because we're, we're removing protein feeds that, that, that we really don't need to be feeding to these cows. Another herd, high group, okay, 1,000 cow herd, uh, 100 days of milk, 60 pounds of intake, 15.8, 60% forage, 120 pounds of milk, average for that group, milk to feed, almost two to one. Pretty damn impressive. Zoom in on some more, 30.9, took out 31% NDF, 28, 29% starch, 5% sugar, 5% fat, 60% forage, okay? Again, forage quality. That productive nitrogen to end intake, remember I said 40 seems to be the, the biological max that we that we think about. This group's doing 38%. That's phenomenal. That that is that is really efficient utilization of nitrogen on these cows. A lot of herds are going to be, you start looking across a lot of herds, they're going to be 25, 26%. Huge opportunities. Um, and when we looked at productive end to urinary end, this group is 133. Most farms, most groups, 0.6 to 0.8 to 1, okay? So we are actually excreting more nitrogen in the urine versus what we're actually using to convert to animal protein, which is what we really are trying to do is, is convert nitrogen to human edible proteins. All right, so how do we do all this? Well, first, you know, you gotta, have, you gotta define your animals, right? Okay, I don't care what formulation system you use, Find your animal, understand your understand your client that you're trying to feed. Um, secondly, I want you to think like a microbial nutritionist. Okay, but that's really what we are. First and foremost, we're microbial nutritionists. We're 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 trying to get as much out of that room as we possibly can, and then we supplement the animal. Okay, so how do we really do that? Well, we want to maximize microbial yield. So that is, we got to have a good, healthy rumen to be able to do that. Uh, and then what we use to supplement. Why push the bugs? Why push the rumen so hard? Look at the amino acid composition of milk. Okay, milk's green tissue, so body tissue is blue. And the bugs, the microbial populations in gray. All right. Again, that showing that that symbiotic relationship, that 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 coevolution, that evolution of, of, of the rumen microbial population, and and the ruminant animal uh, to actually be able to survive and 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 reproduce. So we want maximum rumen for uh, output. So rumen microbial yield is directly related to uh, how good our carbohydrate fermentability is. So we want something that's Highly fermentable, not overly filling. Okay, we got to have enough fill to keep the rumen function going, uh, and we don't want to invoke acidosis. 
And then we just make sure we have enough ammonia, have some branch chains in there to keep the fiber bugs happy. Uh, and then if we, and then give a little nice uh, spike to the, the NFC bugs by having some free amino acids in there. Pretty damn simple. Um, doesn't take a lot of, of extra room integratable nitrogen to, to really be able to get this system to, to function at its most efficient level. Where we have a problem though is really identifying and really understanding our, our sources of fermentable carbohydrates. And that's why there's been so much work on fiber digestibility as an example. Uh, you know, we look at the microbial yield out of a high cow diet, about half of the bugs are coming from NFC uh, sources and half the bugs, half the uh, microbial proteins coming from fiber digestibility. So that's why there's been so much focus there. We need the same level of focus on integrated starch. And instead of just thinking about, you know, I'm going to feed ground corn or I'm going to, or I'm going to feed, you know, uh, uh, X source of starch, really take a step back. And this is where the microbial nutritionist comes in and thinks about what's the room integrated starch? You know, what's the potentially digestible, room and digestible starch? And we can come up with some different answers and different values on, on pricing some ingredients. If, if we compare, for example, uh, different processing levels of corn or, or different processing levels of, of, of barley or wheat compared to corn, um, you know, be thinking about pricing the, these ingredients on a, a per kilo or, or per ton of rumen digestible starch. Uh, because that's really what we're trying to stuff down the animal's throat is, is fermentable carbs. Uh, so let's let's price things that way. Let's evaluate decisions. Let's make decisions based that way. Uh, and and it really you know we can manipulate starch processing, starch digestibility a lot by by processing and and, and really enhance microbial yield. Think of, of you know ground corn or ground wheat as a protein source to the cow. Uh, because of all the bugs that we grow. Uh, and a lot of times, yeah, grinding's the cheapest source, cheapest way to process some of these, but is it really the best way? Could we spend a couple extra bucks a ton and, and really improve our starch digestibility 15%, 20%, I don't know. Um, and, and we really need to have good SOPs to evaluate the, the starch processing, uh, regardless of what we do. Uh, are we doing routine particle size on, on ground corns, for example? Uh, or or are, are we uh, double checking these with, with our suppliers to ensure that, that we're getting consistent uh, uh, grind size, mean, uh, mean particle size and such. It, it, it's something that, that really is a struggle to keep up with, uh, but, but it can pay really big dividends in, in how we formulate uh, to maximize room and output. All right, so again, it, it's, we're trying to stuff as much fermentable carbs as possible down that animal's throat and keep that rumen healthy. And rumination collars really help us uh, to, to push that limit a little bit further. Uh, but we also know that, that with some of the work out, out of uh, Minor on, on the, the uh, PE, uh, UNDF 240 work that, that they've done or, or the, the uh, uh, the particle size and and and, and overall NDF digestibility. I mean, there's some opportunities to manipulate uh, our diets uh, to really change uh, some of the fermentability, some of the intake patterns. 
uh, and, and we need to be thinking about how to take advantage of that, uh, uh, especially in, in light of trying to reduce nitrogen levels. And, and then again, like I said, think about um, our sources differently. Th this is just a table that I generated using the model on different ingredients. And, and, and so this is on an MP basis. And, and you'll see there, there's MP from feed, there's MP from bacteria, and so total MP. So if we look at, for example, soybean meal, so this, this is soy 48 uh, grams per kilo of dry matter. There's 227 grams of MP directly from that feed. And yet it's still grown some bugs, about 37 uh, grams of MP per kilo uh, from microbial production. So our total MP for soybean meal, you know, and this is just one example. These are not static numbers because it depends on level of intake, passage rate, yada, 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 but 264 grams. Well, then let's come down here and look at like, ground corn or, or ground wheat or ground barley, okay, we've only got about 40, 50 grams of MP coming from the feed. Look how much we're getting from the bacteria, okay? So suddenly we take this ground, this ground wheat example, 143 grams of MP, that, that puts it right up there as the same MP levels as something like sunflower or, or even approaching canola. Uh, but we're dealing with something that, that's, you know, low in, low in protein, but it's fermentable starch to so are grown in these plugs. And then we look at the amino acid content, again, because of the bugs, fermentable starches are gonna give us better um, uh, amino acid ratios um, than, if, than if we were dealing with, with um, you know, something like cottonseed meal, which is really low in methionine and, and uh, lysine. Uh, so it, it really, again, grow bugs, grow bugs. Uh, just ran an example, again, these prices are old, <laughs> like four or five years old, okay? The, but the, conceptually, it's the same thing where, you know, we, we start taking into account differences in fermentability and, and, and uh, uh, different qualities of proteins, um, you know, soybeans diet versus replacing that soy with, with a canola and a bypass or canola and distillers, or a blend of those, or going from cornmeal to flake corn, or we just, you know, let it have all those sources and tell us which is the best, best mix of, of, of those ingredients. And you look, the soy-based, you know, seven pounds of cornmeal, and this might even be kilos, it doesn't matter. Yeah, I think it is kilos. Okay, so it's a real simple diet, eight kilos of corn silos, dry batter, five kilos of alfalfa hay, seven kilos of cornmeal, three kilos of soy. Well, you know, it kept a little bit of, of the ground corn in there, 900 grams, but look at how much more, look at, it, it used 5.4 kilos of flake corn, okay? Higher fermentability, grow more bugs, it used a lot less hay, okay? Nine kilos of corn silos would have dropped the hay down, uh, and brought in some distillers uh, as well. Well, let's look at the performance, you know, so MEMPLable milks across all of them. You see there's a range, it's soy base 35, 34 MEMP. Uh, replacing it from canola and a bypass where we get, you know, basically 35 and 35. Uh, and it was a little bit cheaper. Uh, we come all the way across here and where we let it you know, optimize across that. We got our uh, about the same price and a little bit more on income over feed costs uh, because we brought up our, our first limiting, uh, which is 
a little bit. So we got a little bit more potential income out of this. Look at the diet, diet crew protein cell. Okay, our soy base, we were 16.4, replacing the, the going to canola and bypass soy, we dropped it to 16.1. And those look bad. Forcing in, you know, distillers to get similar levels of milk, our protein goes up to almost 18. Doing the canola distillers and a bypass soy, over 18%. Look at this when we optimize it though, 15.2. Okay, so same level of performance at a full point lower than what we started from. And, you know, three point difference in diet, diet crude protein, same level of performance, right? So the, 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 this is what really is kind of possible for us to do. So we could also look at, I mean, there's, you know, different forage qualities, different forage species to work with, other fees, formulating it fully for amino acids, okay? Those are all possibilities. There is no one size fits all answers to how do we reduce diet crude protein other than we want good fermentable carbs. Starts with forage quality, okay? Then we're picking, you know, what's the most economical MP source? Typically that's more fermentable carbs, more, you know, feed more starch or soluble fiber or anything like that. And then supplementing the, the cow with the correct bypass protein, if you want, we want to say that, to give us that level of MP and supplementing it for amino acids. But it can all fall apart, okay? We really, if, we, if as we go down these paths of, of being more environmentally friendly diets, if we call it that, okay? You know, we've, we've got to talk work, work with our feeders. We've got to work with our farms. We've got to make sure feeding management's good. You know, what's being formulated, sure, we can control that. But what's being mixed and delivered by the farm? How is the feeder? How frequently are they feeding? Cleanliness of the feed. You know, look, there, there's a picture of a cow sucking out a piece of, of, of twine. And, uh, you know, I took that picture. So, you know, that this, this isn't made up. I, <laughs> we all know it. We've all seen it. Um, are we consistent in, in delivering TMR to the, to the groups? Uh, is there a consistent push-up schedule? And, and is the farm actually doing that? um is it good stable forage quality you know this is little thermal camera look at this 29 degrees nice cool silage in that area but then look at this 41 degrees so secondary fermentation um all these things that will, will turn around and, and cause us to fail uh to be when we're trying to have more environmentally uh positive diets face management just a great example uh We'll see if anyone in Argentina notices who who in that picture he sort of left that there on purpose. Uh, but then there's you know on farm stuff mixing. Uh, now when I play this, you'll probably hear some Spanish being uh, spoken in the background. That this was a mixture in Argentina. Okay, I don't remember the farm it was on, but I remember we were walking by the feed bunks and I saw this all this long hay sitting in this, and oh, we've got this great picture that does all this. That's not being mixed, okay? So there's equipment things that we need to think about. Should we consider, you know, in, in that case, is it, a, is it the maintenance of the mixer? Is it the maintenance of the knives? Or is it the brand of mixer? Or is it the loading order, whatever? These are the things we need to, to really address. Uh, great thing to have for feeders, I don't care what farm size is, let's have a checklist. Um, 
it, that ensures those SOPs are being followed and, and those, and, and we're getting good consistency, uh, in our feeding programs. Uh, making sure the, the scales are working correctly on, on any of our equipment. Now, all these things that, that we, we talk about for maximizing feed efficiency, if you want to use that or, or being, a, being good feeders or whatever becomes even more important as, as we move further because reality is we're, we're removing a lot of the slack, a lot of the safety factor uh, that's in our diets. And that's really expensive to overfeed. We've got to have the management to um, make things work. So with that, all of this is very possible, very doable with good data, good forage analysis, uh, accurate formulations, uh, and, and the care and consistency provided to us uh, by the farms. With that, folks, uh, we will be live shortly uh, to do questions and answer. Yeah, I know, I'm in kind of a weird mood. Long story, we'll talk Thursday. Later, bye. Firstly, I want to thank you all for joining us. As a reminder, today's slides will be available as a PDF document for download from our website. That page will have links to the recording and the PDF presentation. I do convert the audio to podcasts. You can find those under our podcast tab on the website or subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. Before I thank my co-host and sponsors, I'm going to offer a tease for next season's webinars. And I'm really pleased to say that some of the speakers came together yesterday to follow up on our focus on emissions this past year. We are shifting to the management of heat stress. In light of the increasing frequency of record-breaking heat events, we want to examine both the effects and mitigating strategies of managing high temperatures. We have begun contacting speakers, and I've already lined up a good list. And then we're going to throw in a topic off heat stress with the presentation from Odiram Escobar, a nutritionist in Chile with experience feeding very large robot milked herds. This is a topic we've had requested over the years. So in addition to my wonderful AMTS colleagues, Lynn Gilbert and our speaker today, Tom Taluki, I am joined by Dr. Martin Traxler, our distributor in Mexico and Colombia, and the director of AgriLab and La Tech, Elena Bonfante of Dairy Innovations Italia, who is our distributor in Italy, Hungary, and Spain, Sean Lee, our distributor of AMTS in China and the director of InsciTech, and Marcelo Hens Ramos of 3R Labs, who is one of our first distributors who came on board, and he is our distributor in Brazil. In the afternoon webinar, we were joined by Hudai Kavustran of Zerve and our distributor in Turkey, and our hardworking Argentinian co-host Paula Torillo and her staff of excellent translators providing an in-time Spanish translator. We want to thank them for joining us today. We'll ask questions from their country's point of view. And lastly, let me thank my wonderful sponsors from this year. They allow us to pay the speakers, although we don't pay Tom anything, and help justify my time commitment to this project. We thank our gold sponsors, Arm & Hammer Animal and Food Production, hashtag Science Hearted, the Canola Council of Canada. Learn more about feeding canola at canolamazing.com. Adina, experts in animal nutrition with expertise in plant bioactives, and Proteca, transforming the future of farm animal health. Our silver 
silver sponsors are the Forage Analyses Labs of Dairyland Laboratories and Dairy One, both with affiliates around the world, Adiseo Ruminant Nutrition Solutions to ensure animal performance, and Nova Meal from Novita Nutrition. Our bronze sponsors are Amino Max, Virtus Nutrition, Origination Inc., Balchem, and Glucobest. Each of these companies support education and research worldwide, and we hope that you consider them in your formulation decisions. I always like to open it up to my co-hosts in case they have to leave. And since Elena is at the end of her day, I, I offer to her to go first. Wait. Hi, Elena. Wait. 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 Yes. Go. Let me just say a couple of things, folks. You know, I don't want anyone to have the perception that I was throwing any researcher or uh, anything, any product or like that under the bus saying that it's, you know, it's all good science. And, and that's what we really need to focus on with all of this, especially with things like methane. We, we need to focus on science. We need to focus on good science and, and ask and answer the correct questions. I, I just get afraid that that we may look at look for something that's a that's a quick silver bullet. And damn it, we all know in, in science and in biology, there's no such thing as a silver bullet. So let let's let's be responsible in what we do because we are messing with people's livelihoods on things like this. That's all I wanted to say. Now you can have it. Now you can go, Elena. Thank you, Tom. Very kind of you. Uh, so, no, I think it was um, a great presentation and a good overview, actually. Um, so my question uh, is related, uh, you know, both to nitrogen side and starch side. Uh, so you know that here in Italy, for example, there are productions that uh, may not use, uh, you know, urea, for example, uh, to increase uh, soluble nitrogen when it's needed. Is that a detriment? Is that going to be a detrimental, you know, in some conditions, or uh, you know, which is the way to overcome this? You you say that about not using urea, Elena, and, and actually, uh, like in the Parma areas where they can't use silages. Uh, comes into play with that as well, because when we look at at the the natural sources of, of rumen ammonia, uh, we're we're really talking two two potential sources. Uh, good old fashioned RDP by itself, and then when we look at the amount of ammonia that can come into these diets that are silage based, uh, it's it's substantial. Um, so it 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 does potentially give a little bit of a challenge, but it it's really pretty easy to to overcome, and and that's just by using some some excess uh, uh, either solvent soybean meal or or solvent sun, uh, you know, not rumen bypass veg sources, because we're still going to get. Well, if we take regular old soybean meal, we're still going to be, depending on the level of production, 60 to 70% degradable. And all of that, the vast majority of that will end up going to uh, ammonia uh, within the rumen. Uh, so we can easily meet those rumen nitrogen requirements uh, without silages, without the addition of urea. 
may have to overfeed a little bit of 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 uh, non bypass veg sources, but it is what it is to meet the animal's requirements. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. And uh, for the starch, um, so digestibility, seven hour. Um, now I'm uh, basing you know my uh, analysis on NIR. Okay, so is uh, the number the NIR number now you know something we can rely on? There is. Uh, Something more to work on now, or uh, the wet chemicals still the the best. Um, you know, I'm probably going to say that seven hour is plus or minus twenty five percent, maybe, uh, maybe greater than that. Uh, definitely gives us good directionality. Uh, is it something that's perfect? No. Mm -hmm. uh, and and that's a known issue and, and i actually am super excited that that van amberg has a grad student starting uh that is going to work on 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 the start side uh so i'm hopeful that that we can have something much improved in the next three to five years um today i use that seven hour uh in normal formulation all the time um and i think it, it's strong enough for us to make some decisions on but we have to be cognizant that that there is variation around it i think that the bigger issue is uh the whole idea of the uh right now the, the KD and the intestinal digestibility of that starch are disconnected. Uh, so it, it's really, and, and we know from the data that that starch that is not ruminally digestible also has a lower intestinal digestibility. Uh, so we need to uh, spend more time talking about that and making those adjustments to, um, to, to tie it back into what the cow is actually doing with it. You know, in severe cases where we think we may have problems that, that just aren't adding up with the model, probably be a good idea to do fecal starches. And then we can sort of back calculate some of those values just to get us closer. At the end of the day, it's still use the data that you have and watch the cows. Because the cows will tell us if we're how far off we are on things. Mm -hmm. Thank you much, Tom. And we'll see you soon. Be prepared. <laughs> Elena, thank, thank you this morning for joining and for your comments. Um, I'm going to move now to Marty Traxler. Um, we, we don't, I have one question that I will ask, but let's go and see if Marty has any questions or comments from Tom's presentation. Um. I don't really have any any, any specific questions, but uh, um, just to see if Tom's temperature rises a little bit. Um, this week, uh, or in the past couple of weeks, I guess it's this week mostly, um, there's been uh, New Zealand with the burp, burp tax. And, and uh, I saw uh, 
you got a list of, of in-press documents from the Journal of Dairy Science, and there's a couple on, on uh, dairy cows and, and their um, contribution to greenhouse gases. And I was just wondering, I haven't had a chance to read them yet, but I found it interesting that they came out almost at the same time as this New, New Zealand issue. Um, does Tom have any comments on that? I want to, first of all, I, I'm going to thank you, Marty, because I was going to ask him that. I, I sent him a warning yesterday. So. Uh, I, I did not see that impress article, Marty. So I'll, it'll be, that'll be an interesting to, one to go through. And, and hopefully it gives us, it shows that that's numbers that, that um, FAO and, and other groups internationally have been using are too high for, from what's really going on with cattle. Um, the, when I saw that about the, uh, I saw that news article about the, the, the burp and fart tax that New Zealand wants to impose. And that's actually their, their second, uh, time that they're proposing it. The first time it was just a fart tax and, and they got, uh, beat up by everyone and they, they pulled it before it went anywhere. Um, you know, it, it's. It's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting problem because, you know, even like with these products, one one of the uh, issues that I that I have with it is, you go through all these products that that are in various stages of development or or approval processes, and none of them show an increase in performance or maybe a little bit of a trend in changing body condition. So it comes back to how our uh, who's going to pay for it. Because if we're expected to do this, and if if we expect farms just to absorb this cost, and, and some of these are not cheap, um, it's going to drive further consolidation in the industry. And that's we're seeing that every day. Uh, you know, is it paid for by uh, the the milk processor who then passes that that month, that cost directly on to the consumer, or are we regulated to do something? And what we know from other things environmentally, for example, nitrogen excretion, I, I look at things like in the New York City watershed or the Skinny Atlas Lake watershed. Uh, both of those are in New York State folks. And just in case you didn't know, New York City it, water supply is unfiltered surface water. Uh, and they initiated a program over oh, geez, probably 25 years ago now on yeah at least 25 on um, working with farms and doing 100 percent cost sharing to implement changes to control nutrients um someone's got to pay for it at the end of the day and we either that or or we end up regulated Okay, and and I think that's where with New Zealand, I'm, that's probably some of where this is coming from, where they tried to to get the industry to step up and do some things, um, and make some changes, and the industry, um, wasn't able to make progress or 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 didn't address it in a way that that regulators thought it was, uh, working. So the the next easiest thing is do a regulation and force the force it. Um, and at the end of the day, it's going to reduce animal numbers. Um, 
let's try and avoid that happening in in other countries around the world hell look at look at the what's going on in the last several months in the netherlands when they announced a 30 percent reduction in, in animal numbers this is this is this is the 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 path that's being taken because we are not stepping up and uh being extremely vocal uh and as a global industry to tell our side of the story and and work with the work with the consumer groups work with the retailers work with the regulators to come up with feasible solutions and and getting them to understand the biology of the ruminant animal that hey this is this is normal recycling uh carbon you know we're critical part of the uh, carbon cycle if we don't do it we're gonna we're gonna get taxed it's it's a sucky way to do it um but it's an easy way to to force change so tom i come back to presentations we've had this last year um between frank and jude and sarah place and um even even stuff that Oh my golly. <laughs> Our speaker in August, my brain just stopped. Yeah, anyway, um, go on. Anyway, just that the the issues with methane emissions aren't coming from North America. They're not coming from the areas where we're using these more intense it's it's the dilution solution. You know, the more production actually decreases the methane. It's it's how do, how do we help that? It's well, that that gets really tricky, Marianne, and and I've thought about that too, because when we start messing with huh, ruminant animals globally, uh, especially when we get into some of the the developing countries, uh, and and we'll even include India in on this, um, and and even uh, parts of China, uh, Vietnam, um. We, we are talking directly about, you know, it's not just the productivity level, the way that we normally think. There's also the ways that families increase wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a lot of countries around the world, increasing wealth is uh, related to owning animals. So it, it's, it's a global societal problem um that is extremely difficult to address and they also know and everyone knows that that if we go to europeans and and the north americans uh, as well as some other countries uh, where we have well-developed fully developed dairy industries and and we can say some about the same with beef that We've always been responsive to making changes and we're the easy ones to regulate. We don't have a lot of numbers. There's not a lot of us, you know, this is the thing to remember folks. There's not a lot of us in in, in this industry and it's easier to control a small percentage of the population than it is to try and and get change in in other sectors of, of society. So we just have to be more vocal. Um, I'm going to hit one more panelist up, um, Sean Lee, and then we'll move to a few of the questions that we have. Unless Lynn wants to talk, but Lynn hates talking. 
Hey, Tom. Hi, Sean. Hi. <laughs> Good morning. It's it's excellent uh, uh, presentation. Every time I learn a lot. Thank you. Well, <laughs> don't want to complain too much, but uh, you, you spend uh, quite a lot of time to talk about this politics and public opinion management. It's difficult. Um, but uh, to come to China, actually, dairy industry is uh, is not. Uh, it's still government uh, support. Um, people want more milk, and um, yeah, large dairy farms for sure have a better time as smaller dairy farmers are suffering. But overall, the environmental policies are. Well, I, I have to admit, uh, it makes more sense than what we have here in Canada or New Zealand, though. So, uh, like, we are go going crazy. Uh, many people don't believe this. So, well, China maybe more actually come to environmental policies and uh, um, for agriculture, their own rationale and follow the common sense and um yeah they're building a lot of uh, solar panels and uh, windmills that's for sure that's it's amazing but overall they, they have very rational agriculture policy and i'm happy to see that and uh, well sean and, let me jump in there for a second they have a very rational ag environmental policy because they still rely a lot on food imports it, it's you know if you notice where we run into a lot of these more regulations in, in a more regulatory environment is are in in countries and societies where we have excess food and, and food's cheap yeah and, and we we rely on exports so it, it's there's a lot at play here and 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 you know hell this country this country's never really seen uh severe widespread hunger unless we go back to the depression uh yeah. so when you have a a, a well-fed society over generations that's used to cheap food uh mm -hmm. the demands go up on on the production level uh, especially as we've had more and more consolidation, more and more people being two, three, four generations now away from, from having family that was in production agriculture. Uh, where, and, and I think that's some of the same trend that we've seen in Europe over the last 20 years is as newer, younger generations are coming into and having a say and having more, more vocal uh, beliefs uh and they're a further generation away from you know the lack of food during world war ii or or having family members that are directly involved with, with agriculture uh so we're, we're 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 facing a lot of challenges of of, of how to uh get our story out and 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 have positive impacts on 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 the regulatory side, on the the overall approaches to environmental issues, uh, we're 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 a minority. We're a very 
very small minority, actually. Um, and all of these things, it's just like getting into animal, animal welfare issues. Uh, so many people get into, it turns into an emotional topic and you start throwing science or, or facts at them and, and, and suddenly you're dismissed as being in the pockets uh, of big agrochemical companies. And so there's a credibility issue there as well to overcome. It, it's, it's a shit show is what it is. Um, and it's not, and it's not getting any easier for us. Yeah, but after all, I think we here, even in Canada or US or New Zealand, the system is very efficient. So the per per kilo per unit of uh, you know good food, the environment cost is lowest. So if we can produce more. Actually, overall, if you put a, a global perspective, actually, it's better for for the environment. But um, people here, you know, we, we put the extremist uh, to making policy and mandate that it's crazy and stupid. Yes, uh, yes, it is. I'm gonna <laughs> yes, I'm gonna move us uh, back uh, to nutrition. Yeah. Okay, okay, all right. Okay, <laughs> second, second, I have one more. Since uh, CPS, okay, very exciting. I. I I, I can't wait to see that, but hopefully you guys can work harder and faster, <laughs> but maybe sometime next year, but I really can't wait. Um, yeah, start side uh, analysis, just like Tom said, IR is, you know, it's 25% given, percent given and take. Um, it, it's hard. Um, but recently we are doing some portable IR and other analysis. I think it's 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 useful. Um, it's it's good. Anyway, um, no 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 questions for you. All right, cool. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Sean. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna tackle some of the questions we have. Um, this one, Tom, you answered, but you didn't really explain, and I'll oh, get. Oh yeah, it. That, I did. I that know, on no, purpose. I know, but it. It moved it off the open question. Yeah, I know. There we go. Um, so how is NH3 as a percent of requirement calculated? Is it really a requirement, for example, or for i.e. one third of an NSC nitrogen requirement because one plus 100% of SC nitrogen requirement or simply a total nitrogen balance given excess nitrogen is assumed at the end in the NH3 pool? All right, Jim, I wish it was that simple. Um, and it's actually not because uh, from the from the fiber bugs, it is 100% of their nitrogen requirements as, as calculated based on the potential microbial yield from uh, uh, potentially digestible NDF. They're the easy ones. The, the tricky one comes with the NFC bugs, because, and, and this is where, this is actually an error that we had found in CPM uh, when we were developing version six of the model. In CPM, there was a disconnect uh, where the, the NFC bugs had a, a requirement for peptides, uh, and then 
uh, it was just assuming one third of their requirement or yeah, one third of their requirements had to be from ammonia. And when the peptides were deficient, it was uh, not shifting that, that nitrogen requirement over to ammonia. And, and that's where it's tricky with, with the NFC bugs because they will, per the model, per all of Jim Russell's work, the NFC bugs will get a, a growth enhancement of up to, I want to say it's up to 16% in the presence of free amino acids and peptides. However, that is, that, that is not an obligate requirement. If there are, if the rumen is low in, in free amino acids and peptides, they will shift their nitrogen requirements over uh, over to ammonia. Uh, so it, it's calculating their requirements. We we take into account first what's the 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 uh, uh, peptides available in the rumen, uh, and then uh, meet everything else be, beyond that supply side uh, limitation potentially with ammonia. So they, they could be anywhere from a third of their nitrogen requirement from ammonia to, you know, meeting 80% of their nitrogen requirements from ammonia. Um, so they, they are the more dynamic uh, uh, pool in, in those uh, requirement calculations. Uh, and then on the supply side, just, just so everyone uh, knows, the supply side for ammonia is coming from several sources. One is... Uh, rumen degraded uh, proteins, uh, uh, rumen supplied ammonia, uh, and recycled nitrogen uh, through the entire system. And so it, it's it, it's actually that 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 requirement is pretty variable. Uh, again, driven primarily by how much carbohydrates uh, were actually uh, degraded uh, and and then adjusted for free amino acid and peptide availability, and then the balance of everything is ammonia. All right, thanks, Tom. Um, next question. Hello, Tom, thanks for a great presentation. Is there any amylase enzymes with good consistency to improve coarse starch particles when grain silages are poorly processed due to late rains and where the farmer cannot harvest properly. The main focus is to improve rumen bacterial mass, but the question is, are other pro are there projects products to improve degradation of these coarse particles coming from the bunker of poorly processed starch? I see a lot of manure on different farms where maize particles can be seen in high proportion. We tried to use different products to decreased starch percent in the manure, but the response is inconsistent? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and there may be some uh, proprietary uh, products uh, that I'm uh, unaware of. Generally speaking though, um, no, there are there is nothing. And actually using amylases is uh, wrong. Um, because remember these starch, these starch, um, um, uh, structures, here we go, are encapsulated in proteins. Okay. If we take maize, okay. So the, 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 the starch is encapsulated basically by the Zane proteins, which are prolamines, which are, 
resistant to enzymes, uh, mammalian enzymes typically, uh, and are soluble in acid over time or sol soluble in ethanol. That's why we see this increase in digestibility over time uh, in, in silage. And there, so really what we would need, and, and there has been a little bit of work done on this. Uh, Lyman Kung did a, did a, a trial, I forget how many years ago now, uh, where they did a mix of different or different proteases as well as some amylases. And, and they were getting, they were showing some really nice responses in, in starch availability. I don't think any of those uh, products that, that that they did those trials on have been commercialized, uh, but that's really the direction that that we need to take is an enzyme blend that includes proteases that are specific uh, with maize for the zane proteins. Uh, we could talk about the same thing with sorghum. Very, uh, that's even a higher level of, of prolamine. Uh, I don't remember this the the specific name of the sorghum proteins um and so yeah there, there's there's potential there uh the problem i think with some of those we start getting into proteases uh the cost starts to go up uh pretty quick uh so i would love to see more work on that because i think there's a lot of potential there okay um so tom when you were discussing compare comparing the different fermentabilities of carbohydrates would, um, and this is, this is sort of to people who are using our program, would the feed pricing analysis tool be a good use Absolutely. for looking at those? Absolutely. I love showing it, showing that through there. Absolutely. You're welcome. If you want to share your screen and demonstrate it, uh, it or, would take me a or while tonight. To, yeah, we could possibly <laughs> do that tonight. Yeah, think uh, set something up during the day and and maybe do that tonight, and then it'll be on the recording for anybody yeah. who won't see it. So. Maybe we'll see. Maybe, yeah. We're talking so much about low protein diets, and if I remember Larry's work correctly, those were on actual farms with real life diets, and the farms doing them were being profitable and and continuing on. The new NASM information has quite higher recommendations um, for for protein. What what sort of Oh man, you're gonna throw me under the bus like that, are you? I, I don't mean to. At least <laughs> I could ask it. I just it, I, I looked oh. at it and you know, you know I don't it just I I, I wondered. <laughs> there are many issues and, and some of the issues uh go back to the two thousand one NRC. Part of it is is relying upon uh in situ uh, and there's lots of lots of problems with the institute methodology when we're looking at, at rumen nitrogen demands and and overall nitrogen flow through the cow. Um, it is just uh, it, it it's not uh, environmentally friendly to to use nasm from a nitrogen based uh, standpoint. I'll leave it at that. I think you said that very diplomatically. Good job. I tried. <laughs> you did so well. I know. Sometimes I can be a big boy. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> um, you? <laughs> Let's see. And when Paula cautions that when you get to um, sharing your screen, just go slow. Super fast. Yeah, yeah, yeah super fast. <laughs> super fast. Just go super fast because she loves that when you do that. I know. 
<laughs> um, next question I had, and these these examples you gave were definitely based on, um, and and this this has been emphasized, and it sort of goes back to letting a cow be a cow. High quality forages. What is your recommendation when it's not possible to have those high quality forages? What oh, would you? But it is possible to uh -huh. work with poor quality forages you know, and still have high levels of, of nitrogen efficiency. Uh, again, it comes back to what byproducts uh, are we using uh, when we are forced to use things like a lot of gluten feed, be it wet or dry, uh, then our nitrogen efficiency is going to be lower. Brew can work really well. Uh, and, and But then again, it, it's how do we supplement with with good fermentable carbohydrates, be it ground wheat, ground barley, ground corn, or, or other processing methods of, for, for any of those to soak up as much as, of that uh, rumen available nitrogen as possible. Perfect, thank you. How are you doing on your loading? Well, when I look at my efficiencies, they, they are, as bad as I thought they were, they're actually worse than I thought they would be. I'm looking at a heifer diet right now uh, for, let's see, these would be pre late pregnant heifers. And my productive N over total N is 0 0.15, um, which is not surprising. If I go to uh, a heifer that is, let's say, average of four months, three months. And that number is 0 0.33 to one. Um, it's that, well, yeah, growing animals are going to be less nitrogen efficient just because they're retained their, you know, we look at average daily gain as a percentage of uh, of you know productive productive use versus maintenance use is really low so they're never going to be as good at, as lactating cows but if if you go back to some of the research that's been done on um animals growing animals that have been fed really well and how more productive they were as cattle is that something that can be looked at to well if we if yeah we can ameliorate do some that we, we well yeah yeah but you know, if we include the whole, all the beef cattle in the world, um, they're not as nitrogen efficient. They're not as nitrogen friendly. Mm -hmm. Lacta lactating cows, just because of, of especially high producing cows uh, with, with all the, all the nitrogen that's leaving the farm in terms of milk. Right. Are phenomenal. And right. close up dry cows. Yeah. I'm in that 0.14 to one or so. Yeah, so it's pretty similar. Non non lactating animals are going to be um, a lot less efficient. Oh, right. Dang. Oh wait, wait. Sorry no, if that I'm was sorry. a loud noise. That was the that total was... end. That was the total end. I'm sorry. Productive end to urinary end. Yeah, on on a dry cow is 0.26 to one. And on a late bred heifer, I'm looking at the right line, 0.33. Hmm. Yeah. So, they, yeah, that, that's 
That doesn't surprise me at all. Um, who died? Do you have? Uh, are you going to show us anything, Tom? Or are you keep rolling? Um, I'm not going to show you anything on this discussion because it's just a report that would be okay. Great. Good, good. Um, Hudai, do you want to ask another question or shall I give Paula a turn? Yeah, maybe I have one other one. You know, the plexids, I'm paying some attention to the feeding the dairy cows, especially in the early lactation with the flexid. So, the you know, there's some, I think there's cyanide in flexid. Does this affect the cows and the, some bad effect on the cows? Do you have an idea about this one? I do not die. Um, again, it it would come back to the levels and and dilutions to solution. I mean, we we've been there's a lot of flax that's fed in parts of the U.S. Uh, in Canada. That uh, and boy, I'm trying to think of some of the levels I've seen because they've been blends for uh going manipulating milk fatty acids um and i want to say well even the the calcium salts of flex oil um that flex that flex blend i want to say i've seen as high as they'd be getting hmm, well over a kilo of flax meal um so no i don't know i i don't know okay. Tom, is flax meal one of the products they would use to try to increase the omega-3 fatty acids? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And because I when Sarah was in Wisconsin um working for Purina, I know that one of the things they did, they had some cheeses that they were trying to do high omega-3 cheeses. And so they were bringing in a lot of flaxseed and it definitely made the cheese texture odd. Sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Hi, uh, uh, hey, Tom. Hi, Maria. Hi, Sean. Hey, I just uh, had a few words about this flag seeds. Um, the, the different flag seeds, you, you need to be a bit more careful. Um, like, you, you cannot just directly add unprocessed flag seeds. Um, I think you need, on the market, there are some products like uh, extruded or dried, extruded or mixed with something else. But overall, you need to make sure this product, the fat, the fat is still uh, highly uh, unsaturated. So if it is not processed properly, um, it hurts the rumen bugs. The, the amount uh, you, you, know, you use, usually it's processed, if it's processed well, uh, you can go to uh, 700 gram or a kilo. It again uh, um, depends on how much uh, flaxseed oil in that product. If it's pure flaxseed, apparently the 40% flaxseed oil within that is 50% of them kind of unsaturated. So be careful. Yeah. Thank you, Sean. That that's okay. good information. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Paula, I'm going to see if you're ready with some questions. Yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, Tom, thank you. Uh, that you you didn't share your screen. 
<laughs> because we don't <laughs> understand anything when, when you share your screen. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm going with the, with the first question. If uh, you think, uh, if you said the cow is using or eating byproducts which are not uh, edible, not edible for humans, and uh, if we feed them amino acids, aren't we going in the opposite way? Uh, well, how many human foods are formulated with synthetic amino acids in them? Um, I can't really think of any standard foods. There'd be some supplements that might have some extra lysine in them. Um, I can't think of any off the top of my head, Paula. Um, and then when we think of the, the, yeah, no, I'm really struggling with trying to come up with an example of where that would be a direct competition. I, I can't, I can't come up with one. But even if we did, we we would be talking, oh, hell, you know, my current diets would have less than um, let's see, uh, point oh eight divided by 60 times 100. Yeah, I'd be about 0.1% of the diet would be amino acids. <clears throat> and, and and we put that in perspective against uh, some of the human food byproducts that, that I feed. I'm using a, a bakery candy cookie blend that would represent, well, right now it's about 10% of the diet. Um, and if we weren't feeding that to cows, it would go into landfills. Uh, so there's, so on a grand scale of thing, you know, any any of these small inclusion specialty nutrients that that we would feed that could potentially go direct to human um, are are really so minor compared to uh, the vast majority of of, of human ed inedible foods feedstuffs that we use to feed cows. Thank you. Thank you. Um, okay. Paula, I'm going to, I'm going to butt in with a question before you go on with more. Um, Tom, this past week or 10 days, Lynn and I have been talking back and forth and I, I'm asking this because I'm glad to see Lottie has joined us. Um, she, we were trying to look at, she, she was asking some questions about RUP and RDP and often that along with NEM, NEL, are used as rough analyses and rough um, guesstimations of the quality of a feed um, in the model, their tabular values. And, and we tend to tell people that, no, we look at MP and ME. What do you recommend that people do to, to do that sort of rough and ready analysis of a feed before, it, before they put it through the model? 
Well, from from again, primarily we are so concerned about how much fermentable carbohydrates and just total energy because all of our animals are are energy limited. So as a real quick and dirty number to look at on a forage analysis, uh, I use the, this is going to sound kind of odd, so we're going back to an old, old style number, um, especially if the forage analysis has the level one TDN, from, which is from the 2001 NRC, dairy NRC, uh, or even, well, no, they're not doing TDN in, in NASM anymore. That kind of bites. Um, but that level one TDN, which is uh, calculated, it, it's, it's uh, uh, oh, it, it, it's based on, on work that Bill Weiss had done for years. The correlation between that TDN and what the ME or MPO allowable production through the model is really high. That's actually a really good, it's a really good number to, to, to do a quick evaluation on. The protein side is a lot harder and it, and it really comes back to uh, uh, our, if we're looking for things that, that are, uh, that are going to provide rumen ammonia. Well, basically, Everything's going to be. Everything's going to. It, it's really, to me anymore. It's a. It's a question of, of evaluating different bypass proteins, where where the question really, you know, what what's their quality, their digestibility, their consistency, etc. Everything else, you know, it, it's meet, meeting rumen ammonia requirements is typically pretty easy. So I, I really struggle with how to answer how how to to have a, a quick and dirty number to to look at on a feed analysis that that would um, give an, an an indication of, of where that would be if i had to pull one quick out of, out of the air i would probably say uh, uh total soluble protein uh because that's going to be primarily room integrated uh but it's it's not going to capture all the potential uh, degradable nitrogen uh, coming in from a feed, so it, it's it's really difficult. I, I have not come up with a, an adequate answer to, to the protein side. Energy is easy, TDN. All right. Well, well, thank you, and I hope I hope that helped Lottie um, in some of the questions she had in the past week. Um, Paula or any any of my co-hosts, um, can any any of you have any questions that you want to re-explore? I have. Very good. Four. Go. <laughs> of course. Okay. The second question is, if we have to consider a special uh, protein formulation uh, for fresh cows, considering they have, um, they, they regulate their dry matter intake uh, with the fermentability of the starch. Oh, wow. All right, so that 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 goes into the entire hot theory uh, that Mike Allen uh, proposed several years ago, and how high levels of fermentable starch um, with all the propionate, propionate production limits dry matter intake, especially in the in the fresh cow. 
And and the data on that is really mixed. Uh, even Mike's data uh, itself sometimes showed showed that that occurred. Other times didn't they weren't able to invoke it. Uh, the data, let's see, Minor Institute did a couple trials where uh, they were able to to show uh, show that happening. Uh, Overton's Tom Overton's group at Cornell did a couple trials and they were not able to to show that the impact. And the the best I can say is when when the Minor and Cornell data was combined. It's not really an, an overproduction of propionate per se, but rather the 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 relative difference uh, in fermentable starch between the close-up diet and and the fresh diet, where where if that starts getting too wide, you know, more than five unit five points difference uh, in in fermentable starch, then the risk of reduced intakes in the fresh cow goes up tremendously. Um, and so it, it's really um, comes back to 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 the the the, the prepartum and, and and the fresh cow diet formulations and and we can minimize that risk tremendously uh, and and then not have to worry about trying to push extra MP into the diet. And and we also know if we did that, uh, we would actually see body condition score drops much quicker. Um, and and in the long run, it, it's it's not very it's not very successful. Um, so it's really don't get don't worry about you know pushing additional MP into those fresh cows as much as ensuring that you, that the transition. And, and and the 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 difference in in fermentable starch between close up and fresh is less than five units apart, uh, and, and you will see intakes and in, in fresh cow performance uh, improve really nicely. It, it it's it it's a really when when I after I saw that data, I looked at my diets and I was like six units difference. And and I moved them to to four and a half or so units difference, and I definitely saw an increase in the slope of, of fresh cows in terms of milk production. Um, so it is, and and it's probably not so much. It's probably more related to rumen adaptation going from from a, a lower starch to a higher starch uh, type of diet. So if we give that cow more time in the prefresh period to acclimate to to a higher starch, that everything actually works better. Okay, great explanation. <laughs> okay, uh, may I go on with the next question, Maria? Um, yes, Paula. And then I've got I've got a question that I'll come back to after your next question. Okay. The, the third question is, uh, do we have to think also in the rearing diet to um, diminish the environmental impact? Where do we have to focus in these cases? 
in 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 lactating? No, in the rearing heifers. Oh, in heifers. Oh, wow. Um, in heifers. Um, well, it it's going to be. Huh. That's a great question, Paula. Um. It, it's it's going to be that that uh, uh, excessive feeding of degradable protein again it is we're going to have more urinary nitrogen excretion and, and that can also be a, a, a greater expense. I, I was just putting together some diets and, and looking at using uh, uh, a bypass soy versus uh, solvent soy or canola meal in, in heifers. And, and I was having to feed uh, a lot more uh, of the canola or, or the soy uh, to get the same amount of MP allowable gain. Um, and, and I think that it goes, it goes two ways with that. One is um we want to maximize the growth of those animals that it because it's again if we think about it in terms of of uh, uh pr productive nitrogen so in that case it would it would be uh body gain uh in in relation to total nitrogen or urinary nitrogen or, or total nitrogen intake the higher the gains we have the 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 more efficient uh, that animal will be, uh, and and then watching how much total degradable uh, nitrogen we, we we have in those diets, and minimizing that uh, so that we can reduce nitrogen excretion. Tom, would that also come around to um, focusing some on genetics and making sure you're raising as few heifers as possible with the highest potential and then doing it well? Well, that's always a, 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 a great uh, concept. Um, it it it's ties back so much to is the farm in a growth mode or, or in a, um, you know, what are the goals and objectives of the farm? Are, are, are they, can they market excess heifers, which, you know, chances are they won't break even on raising heifers doing that, but, you know, it's cash flow and that's what a lot of people look at with doing that. Um, it, it, it's, if, because if they're in growth mode, if, if they're going to go from 1,000 to 1,500 cows over the next couple of years, uh, or, um can, how successful is your calf program? I mean, there's so many things that go along with that, Marianne. In a perfect mm -hmm. world, yes, we would we would know the genetic potential of those animals, and those with the poor genetic potential would be uh, would be called at, a, at, at at as early as possible, or they were bred to uh, a beef semen using beef semen. Um, yeah, and and we're slowly seeing more and more of that. Uh, but there's, there's a lot there that, that has to work right from a farm management standpoint for that to be successful. Yeah. I'm reminded of the, um, 
one of the first year's talks that we did, Noella Silva del Rio and her analysis in California of just the many and multitude of places that a well-formulated diet can be um, not received or fed to the cows. And it, at the time, I found it really discouraging. We've had we'd have several similar webinars since, but yeah, it comes down. You had a slide about that. Oh, don't let's not even talk about how management a, a, a bad feeder can screw you. Yes, yes. Um, Paula, before I I turn back to you, I'm going to follow up from um, Lottie Kingsmill. She has a question: Would you balance beef cow and backgrounders in similar percentages of nitrogen utilization and efficiency as a lactating cow? Uh, those growing animals uh, will never have the same uh, level of, of nitrogen efficiency, um, and, and unfortunately, at this point, I don't think we we have enough numbers to really even come up with an idea of, of, of what is possible. Um, so it, it's, it's an area that, that, that needs that needs more attention for sure. Okay. So Thanks, I'm not even, I'm not even going to try and guess on a number lot. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I, I'd have to sit and play with a bunch of, of different formulations and, and, and try and come up with, you know, it, what kind of estimate that, that that we could be potentially looking at, but wow, yeah, um, I, I I hesitate to even throw a number out at this point. Mm -hmm. All right, thank thank you for taking a stab, and Lottie, thank you for your question. Um, Paula, do you are you ready with some more questions from Argentina? Yes, ready. All right, shoot. Okay, uh, this is a question from Ariel. Uh, in the herd D, you showed us a diet with a feed efficiency of 1.99 milk uh, divided by dry matter intake. They ate 59 pounds of dry matter and produced 120 pounds of milk. Uh, did that, those cows, uh, were those cows losing weight? Because the report showed a positive balance. Is, is that possible? The diet had 1.77 mare cows. Uh, it, it is, okay, so that would be the high group of cows on that farm, okay? That it's, it's, it's data that, that came from uh, uh, Larry Chase and, and Mike Van Amberg. So uh, I think I know the herd that that was, uh, and I can assure you that, yes, those cows were doing that, and their body condition score change would have been very small through, through that production period. It all comes back to really good forages, really high levels of intake, And, and let me throw this out at you. Here, here's, haha. We can, you know, all the numbers that that been able to pull together, you know, it, it's kind of, I want you to think this way, that cows have the genetic, they're, they're probably, I could call it their genetic potential, uh, but 
I, I won't. I'll just say their production potential is it looks like somewhere between meh, 12 and 13% of body weight in terms of energy, energy corrected milk. Okay. Um, now, not many herds, not many, you won't see many herds doing, you won't see fine herds doing that. You'll find groups of cows that can do that. Um, I was talking with one of our clients uh, in Western Canada uh, about a Jersey herd uh, that the entire herd was averaging over 9% of body weight. Um, so the question becomes, if, if we are not seeing those numbers, if we're not seeing that the high cows, uh, peak cows being, you know, 9, 10, 11% of body weight, the question becomes why? Uh, and, and that is... First and foremost, a forage quality issue, an intake issue, can be a housing issue, um, and it can be a management issue. But day in, day out, there are herds doing, you know, aver herds averaging 50, 50 plus kilos of milk, um, forage quality, and, and, and um, good management. Great. And, and following that question, how the, does the nitrogen excess affect the cows where, with negative energy balance? Uh, it'll push them into a little bit more negative energy balance. Um, so there is an energetic cost for excreting excess nitrogen uh, because of, of what the kidney has to do. And within the program, that's what we call the urea cost. And that gets added directly to the maintenance energy requirement. That can range anywhere from uh, less than a tenth of an mcal of ME to greater than two mcals, two and a half mcals, uh, especially if it's, it's a, a pasture-based system uh, with no additional grain being supplemented. Um, so it, it definitely has, um, has, has some negative impact and, 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 you know, well, it, we can come back and say, you know, if we're looking at groups with MUNs of 14, 15, definitely utilizing excess energy to get rid of that nitrogen. Thank you, Tom. You're welcome, Paula. Okay. Paula, are you are you all set? Yes. Oh my goodness. All right. Um, I have a question for um from Weben and he says, except maximizing rumen microbial production, what other tricks can we play to maintain high production if the price of soybean meal and canola meal are relatively too high? Relatively too high to what? Um, maybe he'll chat, maybe just hi. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but again, where are we in terms of that marginal, uh, marginal response curve and, and, and really as we uh, look at, um, the relative cost difference, uh, between 
uh, soybean meal and bypass soy products. Well, that that price differential really hasn't widened. So so it's actually on a cost per gram of MP, it's gotten cheaper and cheaper actually to, to use to bypass products. Um, so it, it's really the way I, and this is the way I, I approach it, is what is the lowest cost per gram of MP? Uh, and, you know, that that could mean that we look at different different processing ways with starch products. Uh, it could be using more uh, bypass uh, products. As long as we're meeting the nitrogen requirements of the bugs, then supplement the cow and minimize the excesses. Um, there may be opportunities uh, for some uh, we're we're seeing some some new additives and such from from some 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 sources that may help with some things, uh, but we've really got to be critical, uh, do a critical evaluation of, of the data that they provide to see if it's going to be economically viable to use. All right, um, Tom. Unless I get get uh buy-in from anybody else i think we have covered all the questions um we did have a comment more than a question is thank you and it was great to have the discussions always um tom thanks for taking the time and being with us and um hudai marty paula 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 and sean <laughs> thanks for joining Mar marty no more flying for you uh, I saw my goodness. <laughs> uh, uh, Sean, uh, yeah, uh, see you next week. Uh, Hudai, enjoy Australia. Uh, yeah, thank you. Unfortunate that we won't catch up with you next month, but I would be with you and go see, go to Australia, uh, especially in the spring. Yeah, that'll be nice. Yeah, yeah. yes, spring. All right, I have a I have a quick one. Any comments on high protein DDG? <laughs> oh, I evaluate those the same way as anything else. You know, cost per gram of MP, uh, and then where will I end up on on lysine uh, balances as well? Because being a corn protein, it's going to be a low lysine, uh, and then. How consistent is the product in, in terms of being a high protein? Uh, some of them are really good. Uh, you know, that that's that's for sure. Um, but again, look at them in terms of cost per gram of MP and cost per gram of MP lysine and make your decisions based on that. All right. Unless we get another one real quick. I'm going to say thank you to everyone. Um, it's been a good season and hopefully next year will be wonderful too. Thank you for attending everybody. Bye everyone. Bye. Thank you. Thank you everyone. <laughs> Bye. Bye guys. Bye. Bye. And we got to figure out how to get to Argentina in the next year so we can do some shit live. Bye everyone. Ooh, Paula's going to visit. Paula's going to visit? Yes. Yeah. I'm going to the U.S. and you come here. <laughs>
<laughs> going to come up before ADSA. Ah, uh, okay. Well, let's see if we can't get. Yeah, we'll talk. Okay. Right. Yes, we'll talk. Thank you. Bye. 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 Bye.